Good morning and welcome to our webinar, Leadership in Agile Environments. My name is Natasha Bradley. I'm the Commercial Manager here at Inform, and I'm really excited to be joined by Sarah Sharkey, CBE. Today's session is going to be interactive, so if you have any thoughts or questions while Sarah's going through her presentation, please put your hand up or comment in the chat so we can bring you into the conversation. So before I hand over to Sarah, just to give you a little bit of um, detail around Sarah, so I'm going to run through a, a short version of her bio. So Sarah Sharkey, CBE, is an experienced leader in defence and digital services who served for 30 years in the British Army before joining Deloitte in 2021. Her Army career comprised of electronic warfare, warfare operational deployments, training and leadership mentoring for the last decade, application, deployment and cloud services. She led the startup of what is now emerging as the UK Defence Digital Foundry, enabling defence to shift to dynamic software delivery. Sarah also led the delivery of secure cloud services at enterprise scale within defence, as well as providing pioneering leadership into medical and identity IS transformation programmes. What a bio. So further ado, I'll uh, hand over to Sarah. Brilliant, Natasha. Thank you very much. <clears throat> and, um, and welcome, everybody. Uh, it's good to see so many of you on. Um, now, what this is not is a lecture about leadership, um, just because I've been in the army for 30 years and therefore I know all about leadership, right? Um, I wanted to share a bit about my leadership journey and about how, um, for me, Agile kind of really struck a chord with me as to how my leadership style and, and Agile really went hand in hand. And then what I have learned from there and what I... I'm just going to mute everybody because I can hear somebody picking away and um, I just hopefully... That you can unmute yourselves um, when we come into chat. Um, I do want this to be quite interactive because I don't think uh, leadership is, is quite personal. Uh, we've all got a massive amount of leadership stories and leadership learning and awareness. We've all got great things we've read, great things we've understood, which I think uh, are, is really valuable to share and to, to, to sort of understand more widely. So my leadership journey um, started obviously at Sandhurst. Um, started before that. Clearly, I led hockey teams and all sorts of things. But you know, formally, it, it started at Sandhurst uh, in the early 90s. And the motto of Sandhurst is is serve to lead. And so it's very much about a culture of, of service um, to the crown, uh, to your to your troops, to your regiments, to your people, and to the mission. Um, so that kind of those values and standards were inculcated in me um, uh, quite early on. But I found within the army, um, within defence. There was a bit of a twist to that in that it also meant lead to serve so it's all leadership was the kind of the primary aspect you were the leader you were you were in charge you made the decisions and in many respects in the army that sometimes translated into being you're also the fastest runner and you could do the most press-ups and you could get to the top of the road quicker uh, than anybody else you were stronger faster fitter tougher brighter cleverer you could strip down an sa80 quicker you better rifle shot than than, than your people and in many respects, that was the infantry mentality. Um, to be a leader, you had to be stronger, fitter, tougher. Uh, I, I never was. I, I'm a perfectly adequate runner. I'm not the fastest runner. I've never been able to climb the top of the rope. It's probably one of my failures in life. Um, so I had to lead in a different way in the army. I had to lead through a lot more emotional intelligence. I had to lead by, um, by demonstration, by learning my people, to working out what would enable them to be their best selves. And it was kind of a... And over the, over time, um, I've been a been a, 
exposed to many different leadership models. I'm just going to skip over this one. So, you know, here, here are a few of the kind of leadership words. And in a minute, I'm going to ask um, Natasha to put up a, um, a little uh, word salad where I'd like you all to just put in your own leadership words, um, your own uh, different methodologies to assess leadership. And I, I'm sure like many of you sat here, you've done them all. You've done your Myers-Briggs, you've done your, you've done so many different um, uh, yeah, analysis of your leadership styles and, and what sort of leader you are. You've also, so this trait theory, business chemistry, I've talked about Myers-Briggs, great man theory, behavioral theory. Um, and we've also got lots of labels for leaders, haven't we? From toxic leaders to inspirational leaders, to people just managers, to the boss. Um, I've talked about servant leadership. One of my favourite ones is an individual who used to um, always call himself the big cheese or the grand fromage, um, you know, being very tongue in cheek about how he led. Um, we've all got examples from people who were great leaders um, and also people who were dreadful leaders. But actually, I think most of us know people who were both good leaders and bad leaders at different times um, and in different situations. So, Natasha, if you could just share that word salad, if you're hopefully still on uh, and the cars don't roll down the hill. And um, please just, um, I, I, basically, one of, one of my reasons doing this, I'd love to have a much stronger word salad there, which had a lot more things in it. And I think it's just a really interesting so just please you know as i'm talking just um pop your uh, ideas and thoughts about labels for leaders um different types of theory about leadership and different types of exams and tests that you can do uh, and i think what it will show us hopefully is that there are more labels than there are people there are more labels than you would find time for in your day to try and uh, try and be so how do you decide which one of those labels is is right for you um, and is that something that should be right for you all the time and then we, as we sort of start thinking about agile and the purpose of this call does agile require a different type of leadership is is it different what's what's changed what's uh, what's 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 new um have have humans evolved in the last i don't know 30 years um, and therefore need a different type of leadership our generation x y z and goodness knows what's coming after z um, are they are they a different breed of person? Do they need different type of leadership? Uh, have they been brought up in such a different way that they they, they won't respond to the different for that type of leadership? Or is this about the age we're in? You know, the age of manufacture. Um, and there's loads of really good books around this about how we've moved from the age of manufacture and oil and um, and uh, carbohydrates, carbons to the age of digital. Um, and is that does that require a different type of leadership? You look at age of manufacture, it was about scaling predictable, repeatable processes, making more cars quicker, churning out more um, uh, more printers, more um, more vehicles, more whatever it is, just to do more of the same quicker. So repeatable patterns where bureaucracy, project management, waterfall really worked and that you got success through efficiency, making that processes more streamlined um, and that drove profitability through efficiency of process and uh, more bureaucratic and better um, uh, assurance to make sure things were built in a predictable and repeatable way. That was the age of manufacture. That took a, a, perhaps a leadership style that was um, more autocratic. Um, perhaps it was more condescending. Perhaps that was the big cheese who knew it all. Um, uh, perhaps it was the micromanager who was really pedantic about making sure all those processes were done and nothing was missed. So perhaps that was the leadership style, you know, from 30, 40, even 20, and uh, in many places still exists today. 
does that age of digital require a different type of leadership? Yeah. Um, so some of the words around here, it's the work in digital is, is far more emergent. You know, we don't really know what we're building until the users start actually playing with it and using it and deciding whether they like it or not. Things fail much faster. It's far more personalised, both as an employee, how you want to work, but also um, the users have a much stronger say in whether that piece of technology or that software um, is going to work. There's, um, there's you know, quite renowned now um, statements around every single business is a technology business. You, you look at the, the, the indexes, most of them are now big technology companies. Most companies, even John Lewis, talk about themselves as a technology company because their revenue now comes through their digital online presence and uh, they're using software to streamline their processes in, in their stores and in their workshop, workshops. So everything is becoming that age of digital. And then what drives success in digital? Well, it's, it's reliability. It's, does the thing work? Does it crash on me? You know, it's catastrophic, isn't it? When our cars, our connection doesn't work in our car or when the, the digital broadband goes down or when, oh my goodness, Roblox fell over last week and uh, my kids were distraught because their houses couldn't be built. You know? So that reliability becomes much more important. And increasingly, we're seeing a shift in meaning and purpose as well. You know, the, the social social values, the, the sustainability values, yeah, that's starting to drive the usage and therefore the success. So does that require a different type of leadership? Um, and it's interesting, isn't it? Empathetic there is really growing out. So it's obviously one that, that people are, um, are putting in. So thank you for um, populating the word salad. And I think it just shows and it's brought to responses there. There are so many different words that can be can be used. So I'll just I'll just close that down now and I'm sure Natasha will share that with you. So we talk, talked about yeah a bit about my leadership journey. Um, so I've been on a number of courses throughout my army career through staff college. I was lucky enough to attend a Windsor Leadership Trust um, uh, session uh, between promotion from CAPCO to Brigadier actually and that was the point I threw imposter syndrome away I was told to put it in the bin and walk away from it and never look at it again uh, and uh, fortunately I managed to do that um, and so you know, lots of these different uh, lectures and presentations and um, stories about leadership um, but it's really only when I discovered servant leadership that I, I really started to find the empathy which is about empowering people it's about taking blockers away from teams it's about creating you bring great people into your into your organisations and businesses and then we tell them what to do. Well, why would you do that? And being a, a Royal Signals Officer, uh, when I turned up at my very first uh, troop, which is an electronic warfare troop in Germany, uh, which went um, which had loads of things called Bromeo, which is a massive 16 tonne box body with a huge great antenna uh, on the top, uh, which radiated electronic uh, uh, signals and was basically a jammer. So I'd go around jamming four divisions there on the plane, uh, having a great time with the second lieutenant. Um, I didn't have a clue how that worked uh, or how I should deploy that. But I had a yeoman and a foreman of signals and an, an EW supervisor who did. And, and they were the experts. And so my leadership style was not telling them what to do. My leadership style was making sure that things that they needed for them to do their job were enabled, whether that was, you know, soldiers in the right time, in the right place, with the right kit, with the right orders, um, with the vehicles in the right place in the right time. Yeah, so my job was to enable the, the SMEs, the experts, those, those multifunctional teams to, to operate. Um, and so, you know, my, so my, I really started to generate that leadership style as, a, as an officer then. And then as I moved into 
in my last few roles in the army, which had very much been around um, moving to agile, trying to move the defence and the army up the stack into the software world, building software, building teams, implementing scaled agile. Um, that's absolutely the style that worked for me. It was about motivating. It was about leading. It was about taking away blockers. It wasn't about telling and directing. And I think um, as I start to reflect on that, your leadership style as well isn't very static. So what sort of, you know, I've lost the end of environment somehow. Um, are we the same leader in different different environments? So when we're at work, uh, do we do we are we the same person when we're leading into our teams as when we're in, in, in with our peers uh, as we're as a follower? And uh, one of the um, one thing that's really struck me was um, I was asked asked once whether I would be attending a meeting in uniform or in civilians. And I was like, does it matter? And they were, they were like, well, yes, because you behave differently when you're in uniform than when you're in civilian. You're a different type of leader. And I spent a lot of time reflecting on that. And I've come to, I didn't think I was, and I still don't think I was, but I think I was perceived differently from being in uniform, from being, than not being in uniform. Um, I found it quite refreshing to drop the brigadier now that I've retired from the army, because I feel like I've no longer have a pre, a label that, people expect me to behave in a particular type of way. So actually, as a leader, do you come with preconceived um, views of you? And are you behaving in a preconceived way? Because that's how that particular team works. Or that's how that particular organisation works. Um, and that's even before we get into the whole virtual bit, whether that's multifunctional virtual teams you're putting together to solve a problem or even this online um, world that we find ourselves in today. Uh, I, I coach under, under 10s and under 12s hockey. And boy, am I a different leader there. I'm more like Mr. Tumble. You know, I'm having to be really energetic, you know, really positive, um, you know, quite witty with the kids, quite engaging, constantly looking at who's who's engaged, who's not engaged, you know, really hands on in the right way uh, in terms of being fully engaged in that session. Uh, it's quite exhausting, uh, really enjoyable, different type of leader. As a parent, you know, um, I screech at my kids. I would never screech at my work colleagues <laughs> the way that I sometimes screech at my kids. But then hopefully my work colleagues would never treat me like my kids do. Um, so again, it's a it's a different type of leadership style. It's the you know take three big box breaths and step back, <laughs> and then readjust, and then you know try and work out what's going on in their head, and then trying to make sure you're providing them the right environment. Children see their parents as psychological safety. They can be horrors with their parents because they've got unconditional love. You don't get unconditional love from your team. Um, you might do after if you're a good enough leader. And then uh, the one that always strikes me is a bystander. You know, you're walking down the road and there's an incident happens. It's a car crash, somebody falls off the bike. You know, what, what do you do? What's your instinctive response? Some people freeze, some people wait, some people are instantly in there directing traffic. You know, what sort, what sort of leader are you? Or are we then also all intrinsic at that point and we all step up and lead? And therefore, of the by need, um, you just have to look at, um, you know, families coming across the channel in boats with their young kids. You know, what's driving them to, to make that huge journey across Europe? Um, and that's a massive leadership task, isn't it? Taking a family across Europe and keeping them keeping them alive. Um, and there's, there's, there's we're constantly in situations, whether that's in the hockey club or on the street or just in your day to day life or in, in your in your work, that, that need that, that need to lead. Um, comes up and, and so my philosophy here is I think you have to be a diff all those leadership styles apply at different times and even more so in agile where you don't know what the work is until you start engaging with it 
you want to be far more reactive to what your users are saying, what the feedback loops are saying. You want to be really engaged um, with in, in the moment as opposed to following a plan that was derived um, a year and a half ago. Um, and one of the one of the um, individuals I did discover, uh, and I read a lot, and I and I would really encourage um, if if you're not reading widely and and, and sort of challenging your own thinking, um, uh, certainly one of the things about being a leader in agile is that you're never done learning. Um, a growth mindset is really important. So um, I find continuing to 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 read read and think and attend events like this where you're just challenged, just think about your own own style and your own knowledge and and what you're putting into place and. Dan Pink really chimed with me as to what motivates people and it's motivation which creates great teams. If people are motivated to be at work with the people they're working with, delivering the outcomes they're being asked about to deliver, you will, you will get great outcomes. And those three things, um, uh, and I've seen this written down in lots of different ways by different people, but it basically comes back to this autonomy, you know, it's that ability to be given a job and let and be allowed to get on with it rather than somebody constantly micromanaging or constantly putting gates or blockers in your way so how do you enable teams to flow uh, with their work to have the autonomy to make decisions about how they're going to do it what's the priority within their within their guardrails and boundaries um, and that's um, if you haven't read Mick Kirsten's book around you know about how how you move from projects to products um, then I would thoroughly recommend that because that's about putting in that product mindset as opposed to projects that stop and start with lots of gates. So autonomy is really important. <clears throat> and um, uh, a slight segue again, mission command is the army uh, leadership style. And mission command and agile are almost the same thing, um, uh, which is it's just terribly amusing because at the tactical level in the army, we train and uh, teach and empower our junior leaders that Lance Corps and, and section commanders in battle to take their team of eight or 20 or whatever it is with a mission with resources and they're told to go and work out how they're going to do that and we give them that autonomy something happens in mod land in civil service and in the bureaucracy of government that uh, strangulates a lot of that so autonomy is really key and in agile you can do that because you can set up those cross-purpose multifunctional teams put them into a value stream and let them run mastery is clearly yeah, absolutely essential. And that's, you know, have they got the right skill sets? Have they got access to the right training? Have they got the coaches and mentors that are keeping that growth mindset moving? Uh, are they are they skilled? Because they've done a Scrum Master's course doesn't make them a Scrum Master. You know, so how are they turning that knowledge and experience into 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 mastery? The most important is purpose. And we're all motivated by different purposes. But it's rarely money. Um, it's normally around the value of the outcome you're delivering. So whether that's, um, you know, test and trace or whether that's, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the, supporting the military mission uh, or, or whatever it was, education outcomes, um, having your people really firmly on message with why they're doing what they're doing and getting them invested into the strategic intent of the, of the company or the business or the, or the or the government body then it, that's really really key and those three things if you can get those balanced and feed and water them um, you get motivation and for me that really worked in the agile teams that i've uh, worked in um i wasn't gonna make this quite interactive but i haven't seen any hands go up yet so i'll just finish the one slide and then let's have a conversation because i'm really interested to hear from you or to or to take any questions and answer any questions so um so i kind of just thought i'd just put up a few little bon mots um around leadership in agile 
So Agile is a journey. It's not an end. Um, quite often people dismiss Agile because they think of it as just a methodology uh, like safe. Um, and uh, it's not, it's, it's very much a mindset, it's a culture, it's a way of thinking, it's about having transparent, um, transparent work, but everybody is in a safe space to be able to contribute to. Uh, I read about something called Swarmist this morning, which is scaling without religious, um, religious sort of mindset. So you're not, it's not going to be safe or only safe or DSD is DSD or only DSD. You know, you've got to be able to apply the methodologies to your environment and your situation and, and your workloads. Agile, of course, is never done. Um, there's always more we can do. That that growth mindset is absolutely fundamental um, in order to continue to educate, understand, grow, and, and keep 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 your headspace in the right place. Uh, continuous improvement really is continuous. It's not something we just tagged on at the end of the sprint or the end of the uh, PI. Uh, Got to be constantly looking at ways of improving. Um, I've certainly found, with my experience in defence digital, the beast kept from putting it back so you know the, the gates that were still there the, the security constraints that were still there kept really trying to pull agile back into more of a, a waterfall gated and so you had to keep driving at it and educating educating this is what i haven't done today uh, is listen more speak less and that's coming back to you you've hired great people you've got great people in your teams they've got great ideas so that power of silence um uh, is is really important i think i've spoken about the great the growth mindset um uh, really well. Uh, the power of silence, I don't know if you've, um, uh, I'm sure most of you have heard this and done this and it's particularly relevant when you're coaching and mentoring and I've had to learn to do this because there's a few on the call that know me but know that I do tend to talk a lot. Um, sometimes just not filling in that silence when you've asked a question or you pose a problem to your team, don't jump in to answer it yourself, just sit there quietly. Most people will fill a silence if you if you wait long enough and that's when they, their ideas start coming through because sometimes people will think like to think a little bit before they speak and so that power of silence sometimes is really important most people like to fill the awkward pause talked about server leadership i'm currently reading up on intent-based leadership it's all very similar but it's about having a much more gardener nurturing kind of um uh, a, a view being transformational putting that psychological safety in and allowing the brains to come to work and do their job Reflection, whether that's reading books, studying, um, thinking more broadly, just mind mapping. Um, I find doing these really helpful because it makes you reflect on your leadership style. It makes you think about um, what's important to you for leadership. Uh, and the last one, um, which is a no brainer, really, is authenticity. You know, if you can't if you just bring yourself to work um, be be vulnerable with your people, you know, um, admit uh, when you are struggling or you don't understand you know if you don't understand something ask most people really like to educate uh, and, and explain and you know bluffing or or struggling when you are um, have something happening at home for example that you haven't you haven't shared um yeah is really important and i certainly found when i was um i had my children relatively late so i was probably one of the oldest um army officers with young children and so uh, I was uh, a full colonel taking days off because I had a, a sick baby, uh, as opposed to, you know, my counterparts were all majors <laughs> with sick babies. Um, and it just meant that I could be far more visible to say, sorry, I won't be into work today because I've got a sick child. Or um, I've got to go to assembly this morning because <laughs> my daughter's, you know, being the star and the activity player, whatever it is. And because I could do that message at a senior leader level, 
what I found was my male counterparts at Full Colonel Brigadier also felt um, that they had permission to do the same. Um, and so that, that visibility and that authenticity um, was really, was really important. And allowing that bit of vulnerability um, to make yourself more approachable to your teams and be human is really important. So I'm going to uh, stop speaking there. There are a couple of um, a couple of questions uh, in the chat to start with, but I'm really interested to hear other people's views of leadership and agile, maybe where they've seen it work really well or where they wished um, that they had maybe a different style or what, what didn't work well. So, um, Frankie, do you want to? Do you want to start with your question, but also do a little bit of answering it for me. <laughs> um, so, uh, with the public purse always being sort of uh, a driver in the past for projects, so the failing was not an option. But in Agile, you're much more exposed to um, something not working because it hasn't gone through all the sort of processes of testing and what have you how do you manage that um uh requirement to change the the mentality of the people to not be frightened of failing so that's the hardest that was the hardest thing um when i was in army digital services we went on a journey it took three years to shift the senior leadership's mindset um and in year one <coughs> i wrote, wrote a business case this was around uh, a, a product called westminster which uh, tracked um, the training readiness of, of army units. In, in year one, we said, here's, a, here's all our requirements. This is what we're going to do. This is how much it's going to cost. And uh, got the business case signed off. At the end of that year, I went, well, I kind of said I was going to do all that stuff. But I did I did about 60% of it. Decided not to do 40% of it, but we did this other 40% instead. So, um, and actually the customer was really pleased. Um, and so I gave them a business case in the second year that said, well, 50% of this is we'll definitely do this. The other 50%, we may do some of this, but we haven't quite decided yet. And he had you know, the, the two star, said, OK, we'll sign that off. By the time I got to third year, I just said, I've got a backlog of stuff and I need a million pounds for two teams. You know, because they got they got to realise the value of having standing value streams that were resourced with time and people, but we could flex what the product, what the backlog was going through. So it took it took it quite a long journey, and in that time, we also massively excited the business to realise that in there, a, a lieutenant colonel in his tour or her tour of two years could actually put something in that backlog and see it delivered and have an impact. Um, and that was um, that. But at scale, when you hit the wider defence programmes, you either can do it under the bonnet, so you have a, an overarching business case, and you have a bit of flexibility underneath um, there is a big transformation program going on looking at agile and how they're going to do that but unless they start really switching to product lines and having sta funding standing product lines as opposed to uh, start stop projects and I think this is probably the big thing for me is I need to think less about an equipment program because that equipment word instantly talks about makes you think about something tangible it's a ship it's a tank it's a piece of equipment and start putting a different type of funding in place for uh, technical software outcomes and all, all things digital. Does that kind of answer the question a little bit? Cranky. Yep. Sorry. Yes, it does. Thank you. Steve, got, got your hand up. Yeah. Uh, hi, Sarah. Um, I think uh, so I spent 12 years in the prison service uh, and then moved into agile and a lot of what you're saying resonates the kind of hierarchical structure things simple as 
what clothes are you wearing gives a completely different response, whether the prisoners or whether the staff, because that's the kind of expectation of uh, uh, of what that what that look is. Servant leaders are really interesting one. That's definitely been a shift in my kind of personal management style and kind of talking about what Frankie's saying there. Um, accepting failure as the window of success and fail fast, all those kind of behaviours. My kind of question really is, it's it's one that uh, I found really interesting. Is how do you, what is your approach to working in a prince or what fall environment and delivering in an agile way? How how do you square that circle? Yeah, so I've had I've, I've had that challenge. I think I talked a little bit about how I shifted the business case to allowing me to do that. Um, the biggest lesson I've learned is that it takes time. It's a bit of a marathon, not a sprint. And you have to evidence by doing and by showing the value and about by educating. So um, there's two, pro two sort of elements where I've tried to move teams from waterfall mindsets to, to agile delivery. And both times started off with one team, train them, do that damn pink thing. We did the damn pink thing. We got the mastery sorted. We worked really hard on the purpose. Uh, and then we started to set them up as autonomous, multifunctional teams. But we did it on a very small scale and then ink spotted it out gradually over time to cover the whole team. By the end, the other teams are clamouring to, to, to do it and they were self-starting. Um, but trying to just build the culture and add to the culture and then really, really, really feed and wash that culture all the time. The challenge I left um, with was I had uh, within within my last team in Defence Digital, which started off at 40 with two scrum teams and ended up at 500 with 60 scrum teams. And we were happily agile within our within our team, but we were in a waterfall box, which is really, really painful. So we had um, we had milestones said start PI planning, finish PI planning. Not surprisingly, we met every single milestone. But in order to provide reporting upwards, we had to have these kind of real fixed milestones to so show that we were de delivering according to plan. Uh, and that became painful. So as I, as I was leaving, the, the next sort of campaign I was putting in was trying to push that box bigger. So again, that trying to incrementally push it out. So we bought in a, I bought an initiative to drive scaled agile across the whole organization. So I wanted the PMO to be doing scaled agile. I wanted my two stars to be thinking scaled agile. I wanted Agile to be the primary methodology with happily waterfall underneath it, but having that culture of Agile being pushed more broadly. And so I think it's the case of, and unless you've got that strategic top-down leadership also, not just saying it, because they all say it, we need to be more Agile, you know, but they mean a little A half time. Um, you, you've got to build it by just gradually, it's like a balloon, but hopefully a reinforced one that you just keep blowing up. And so I was trying to push away my blockers further away so they impacted on me less. I could protect my team, but who was protecting me? So what I wanted to do is the next layer up that was getting in my way, I wanted them to start thinking about it and then make a crack on with their next layer up. So I don't think it's an easy answer. The other the other answer, of course, is get in amongst the senior leaders and get their culture changing. And that intent-based leadership, so I've literally just started reading about that yesterday, is about as a senior leadership team, you have got to be demonstrating those behaviours yourselves. You've got to be working in an agile way yourselves as a senior leadership team. You've got to be having that visibility, that um, that open, that psychological safety at senior leadership level. Otherwise, it's not going to connect. So not a, not a, not there's not a golden there's not a silver bullet. I think. 
No, oh, thanks for that. It's just really interesting the commonalities between some of these organisations actually uh, resonates quite a lot. Thanks. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, Erica? Oh, I think you're on mute still, Erica. Hi there. Um, I think you probably just answered my question actually. Um, but I think one of the challenges that I found driving this is, is around the cultural shift, but it's also how you bring your clients and your stakeholders and people that aren't quite so invest. You know, we have some control, control is the wrong word, I know, but some ability to help our workforce and our, to you know, to get up to speed and help them understand that. But our clients and our stakeholders, it's much harder to try when they're saying, what am I going to get and when am I going to get it? And you know, can I see the Gantt chart? It's like, well, no, it doesn't quite work like that. We're going to provide you with a roadmap. And it's trying to get your clients through that because that's the scary part for, I think, quite a lot of organisations is bringing them on the journey. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, and the disconnect between business and IT is still very much alive. A business just wanting IT to sort it out for them so they can use it, not yeah. realising particularly, particularly in the really digital space, it's, you know, it belongs to business, it belongs to the business and the business has got to be engaged. Uh, I've just started working from a client which literally has IT department, business, and they've put a layer of what they call CIOs in the, in the middle to, to translate. And it's just like, well, that's never going to work, is it? Because you just you have completely different polar polar kind of um, drivers. And again, for me, the, where it's worked, it was um, <clears throat> so take a take medical IS in in defence. You know, that was a very transactional relationship between defence digital ISS as it was then and the defence medical services. They were two separate teams holding each other to account in quite quite destructive meetings. Um, you know, why haven't you done this? You said they're gonna do this, you haven't done this. Um, and we tried to we 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 reset the whole program and part of that was really focusing on the collaborative behaviors between the program office and the business driving the business and the delivery team actually delivering the outcomes. And we we effectively just were and also industry who were part of that delivery model. And we kind of worked really hard on building a single team with a single culture and making them all accountable for the outcomes, as opposed to we've, we've told you to do this, why haven't you done it? So we brought them business much more closely to the decision cycle. So whether it's you put a product owner in the business to bring them in and educate the business to provide their own product owner. Yeah. But the magic moment is when the business go, oh, I'm going to be the product owner. Yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. And I'm going to come to every stand up because if I'm not at the stand up, you're not going to deliver. You know, it's not going to work. And there's, a, there's a, always, a, I've seen it happen quite a few times, there's a suddenly a light bulb moment where the business then says, I'm going to be the product owner uh, and we're going to actually work really hand in glove with the developers. And all that middle layer is suddenly no longer needed. Yeah. Um, and I think it's also about finding those first deliverables. And I hate quick wins because I've seen so many quick wins that have just been... Not quick wins. Chocolate fire guards. <laughs> yeah, they just end up being yeah far too difficult or vanity projects or whatever it is it's finding that the early value that you can deliver so agile is about delivering value early isn't it right so yeah. what is it what is that early value you can deliver which makes the business sit up and go oh oh i can have that can i and it might just be you don't like the green button what color do you want it purple right it's purple tomorrow oh i can yeah. actually i can have that i can have that change on that program if I, and I say, right, okay, so how, how can I, what else can I change? Can you change this? Yeah, you prioritise it, set a dev team up dedicated to their, you know, their sort of smaller, smaller bites. And then you bring them into the programme and say, oh, yeah, but you've got all this technical debt, so you can't have all those features because if you, if you don't sort this technical, but you get them, they need to understand more. Get them about, to bought into the process of what yeah. they get and the value. Yeah. 
but again it's it's a marathon not a sprint it's not something that happens overnight you need to kind of get them to have that light bulb moment thank you uh, i can see another hand up i just can't see a uh, samantha hi hi sarah um sarah i'm just wondering what advice you could perhaps give us about you know how we how we how we lead in this sort of hybrid world because I think the last couple of years has really shifted the way that everybody has been working um, and many of us are finding ourselves now um, working from home um, or working in a in a hybrid way and so have you, have you got any advice on on you know how that might change the way that you would lead your teams? Yeah so I was I was lucky in that I'd already been leading my team for four years before we went home <laughs> so I knew them all really well and they knew each other really well and we had practice in fact we were on a business continuity exercise when we all went home so people were already at home uh, we'd also run out of estate real estate in our building so people were already having to work from home and so we kind of got a lot of that process in place um i've now joined deloitte and i don't know anybody <laughs> and trying to you know, trying to work in how, how you how you operate I think cameras are key. <laughs> Having in defence, we weren't allowed to use our cameras because the bandwidth wouldn't cope. Um, but uh, you know, now it's cameras on, not all the time. Once you've got that familiarity with people, you can afford to have them off, so you can do other things in the background and not necessarily, you know, coming from your hot sweaty run or whatever as you've been doing. Yeah, um, yeah. But initially, when you're trying to build that rapport, having that camera on, making sure you're treating your camera. So I'm probably doing it here, looking at the screen rather than the camera. To get that rapport to make people really feel you're engaged in that meeting is really important i don't and then i think we just need to really look at as we you know as we now can go back to the office um uh we kind of need to be really mindful now i think of what everybody's individual circumstances at wherever they are in life parent middle squeeze middle got a sick dog at home whatever it might be or actually been stuck in their stuck in their bedroom for the last two years and can't wait to go back to work you know yeah. there are different people with different needs but for me, um, where I was going with my last team before I left was start to allow each team to define its ways of working in a drumbeat that works for that team and that sub team. But really importantly, I think is coming together when you've got something to talk about. Coming together to sit at a computer in a desk all day is is not is not valuable. Coming together to work shop to swarm a problem to have a social to have a a, a growth day. Uh, is really really important so making coming together more valuable so i think particularly over the pandemic everyone's recruited people across a wider geography so less likely to live live there and so you're going to disenfranchise people if you suddenly start saying right you've all got to be in office on a monday tuesday wednesday you know that will work for some and others and you'll you'll you'll, you'll just shift your workforce and lose it, that great mastery you've got so i i, I it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all answer no, I think no. It, every team needs to work really hard and really positively and actively at finding an answer that works for them and review it all the time. Thanks, Sarah. Is there anybody else that would like to ask any questions? Well, there's no more in the chat. I've got a question. Oh, have you yeah, I've got a question for you, Sarah. If if my if my bandwidth would hold, um, um, I would like to know if your leadership style has changed since you've sort of moved from different cultures. So from your leadership within the ministry events, from now from your leadership within um, Deloitte, has it has it sort of changed in style? If so, how? 
Um, I've only been in Deloitte three months, so probably <laughs> if I've changed it, okay, really, I know it like a bit early. So maybe a bit fickle. I think the one thing that I, I, I've noticed those and a couple of people on the call will laugh at this is I've, I've had to learn to be a bit less pointy. Um, the brigadier does give you a bit of, um, a bit of, what's the quite word, status, power, um, uh, in order to sort of say, no, this is what I think, you know, a bit more, bit more pointy. And I've had to learn to go, hmm, well, what <laughs> have you considered? And just try and you know, just try and a little bit more, a bit more consultancy than a bit more, um, bit more pointy. But actually, many would argue that that's probably a good thing, and I should have been more that way anyway. So, uh, but I don't, I don't want to change that. Um, I think servant leadership is an amazing, 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 amazing way of leading um, in this digital age, and I, I certainly don't want to lose that. Fabulous, thank you. There's, we have still got 15 minutes left. If anyone else has any questions, um, please raise your hand or just come off mute. It would be great. I'm really interested to hear if people have got yeah, experience or, or knowledge or Eric. Okay. Oh, you're on mute, Eric. Sorry. Hey. Um, I'm sorry, Sarah. Sorry, sorry. Er Eric rather than Erica. It's all right, everyone calls me Eric. I'm also no, no, a hockey no, there's player. An so Eric, I'm, Eric, there's an Eric trying to speak. <laughs> I'm also a hockey player, okay. so I'm used to being called Eric as well. So um, oh, okay. now I've forgotten exactly what I was going to say. Um, oh, I know Erica, what it is. Erica, Erica I'm just going to stop you because there's an Eric trying to speak. There is an oh, Eric. Sorry. No, no, it's all right. <laughs> yeah. Hello, Hello, Erica. Yeah, my fault. I, I, was, uh, I was on mute. OK, so, so Sarah, good morning. Uh, I just really wanted to ask... Um, you know, there's uh, a lot, uh, has been for many, many years, a lot of uh, contracts in the defence sector that um, uh, have benefited from um, private sector uh, thinking, input uh, and management. Uh, I just wondered what, um, what your feelings were about um, the use of Agile um, in order to take some of those uh, really quite complex and difficult contracts forward yeah and i would um and that's the problem because our, our contracting the defense is sort of contracting mindset is about contracting for very clear requirements and deliverables so they can be measured against them um so i think our contracts are quite transactional and our contracting methodology is quite transactional so that and it's almost looking it's always driven by fear of failure so that when it does go wrong there is a contract we can hold um the contractor uh, against um for delivery there's been a lot of focus in g cloud and dos about contracting for outcomes uh, but that for me is still about defining exactly what the outcome is um and, and so often those outcomes are quite woolly and what defense thought they're asking for and what industry thought they're asking for quite often a completely different page so we then fall back to sort of more time material type activity but for time and material to work where you're just looking for teams or resources to do stuff you have to have a really strong intelligent customer function internally and strong product owners and you need to have all the the enabling dependencies working at the same kind of drumbeat for that to work so it does get really really difficult where i've where i've seen it work and i'll use quarter zone again as an example uh was the the, the the project manager, program manager within Cortisone was just so, so hot on collaboration and culture. So as we were putting in the new contracts, you know, we're really driving in the collaborative expectation and the behaviours. 
Um, but then also about making sure that the teams were multifunctional, so different contractors from different different um, industries in the same team, and they were all given stupid names like Kingfisher and Puffin, and we ended up with mixed teams and Puffin doors and all sorts of stuff, but gave them an identity that was outside of whether they were civil servants or military or or this company or that company, and made sure they had those damn pink three things and, and then allow them to go. And what I always find is when you get techies together in a room, they don't care who they work for. They just want to solve the problem. And so you empower them to get on and try and push the disabling function, which is commercial, and the disabling function, which is finance, try and push them out of this conversation so that you can you can get on and deliver. And where that's successful, that's really successful. Um, I haven't yet been exposed to one that starting to fail well, actually I do know some of when they start to fail there they fail really badly because you don't have that safety net of a contract so it's about trust on both sides it's about collaboration it's probably about more flexible contracts with some fixed bit some you know call off bit that's agreed a little bit more um, dynamically but fundamentally I think defense needs to bring in a much stronger cohort of um, intelligent customer and business product ownership Okay, that's that's very helpful. And could I just ask um, one supplementary, um, just one one communications tool that you uh, found useful in terms of um, making that work? Um, I mean, all the obvious ones are the you know we actually use the, the Elastian tools everybody uses. You know, moving everybody onto. I love I love the big, big visible radiator. Um, and actually, for us, when we switch to uh, switch to home working in, in the building I had in Defence Digital we had these really random long corridors that were just in the middle of the middle of the floor space those of you that know the building and we were able to just put the whole project project plan there we go the whole the whole the whole PI planning on a board and every day the team stood up in front of those boards and could see the whole work when I when I was briefed I could see the whole work when we had visitors to the floor plate we took them down Rainbow Road or Scrum Alley as they were called and and talked through the work and talked through how our methodology of learning that for me was the, the, probably the one thing that allowed education to happen understanding to happen and collaboration to happen because the work was all really visible switching that on to um uh, into more of a virtual homeworking Miro was probably the, the lead tool for us there uh, but also you know jira confluence heavily used as well and it's about how you use a tool as, as opposed to tool yourself the tool yourself what have you found useful eric um, well, I, I'm, I'm new to to that uh, that sector, so I, it's not something I've been um, familiar with at all. So uh, I must uh, do some further research. <laughs> team, teams. If you've got teams using Teams at work, Teams has a Kanban board in it. Just under task, if you put you sort it under progress, you can create yourself a Kanban board where you can put work in progress, work done, work parts, work delivered, and that's a really good introduction to that agile thinking because you're thinking about workers flow you're thinking about making sure your work visible so everybody can see what's going on rather than being tucked away in emails and spreadsheets so uh, i would encourage you all um i said i used um i used kanban on teams to uh help defense support the nhs when we when we stood up the accelerated delivery cell to deliver a whole lot of urgent operational requirements into defense to work with the nhs during covid we use teams on kanban just so that everybody could at a glance see what was going on, cut down the traffic, cut down the emails, cut down the questions, because you just people just went to the Kanban board and had a look at that 
follow the links and got the information they needed. So have a play with Kanban on board on Teams if you want to just kind of start to think about that culture and mindset. There's a few Great, thanks. That. <laughs> that resonated. Yeah, no, thank you very much. I think we've got a question from Amy in the chat, Sarah. Oh, okay. Hold on, let's chat. <laughs> I think um, if I haven't, uh, hi Amy, how are you? I've watched your uh, new move, and I hope that's going really well. Um, Thank you. Do you want to just, do you want to just talk about it? you? Just you, just you, rather than everyone read your question, do you want to just ask it? Yeah, um, so I've just joined Vodafone um, and I'm in the digital IT function. Um, I'm quite new to Agile and to SAFE, in fact, brand new. <laughs> I heard it when I was at the MOD, but I knew nothing about it. Um, and our department is going to be bringing everybody who's already been working in Agile for a while, um, bringing in sort of the SAFE methodology and um, where I had safe training last week, we're, we're going to be the ones that are demonstrating it. We're, we're starting with it in our department and then it's going to be spreading out. So we're going to be the, you know, sort of drinking our own champagne, as they say. And I just wanted to know what some of the challenges that you had um, and how did you overcome those? Yeah, so um, two two main piece of key advice. One is if you've all done the training together and you've all kind of learnt it and committed to it, um, that's really that's brilliant. That's really the first thing. So you've all kind of rallied around a methodology. What I would really strongly recommend around that methodology, though, is um, don't be a slave to it. It's you know it's not a religion. It's it's a methodology. So make sure that the team are able to adapt that to the way they work, and that that's allowed. So within within my team, for example, we had safe as our language. But I, I was quite happy to allow different dialects to develop so they could slightly different. As long as the language was the same, they could have different dialects. That, that really worked. Um, and I think the other thing is just, again, it's it's about making sure that uh, it's a marathon and not a sprint. You know, they're not all going to come overnight and you really need to keep plugging away with it. I remember our first PI planning we had, which was dreadful. Everybody hated it. They went home loathing it. Um, and if you haven't read about that, actually, everybody hates it. The first one they do that night, they all go to bed utterly miserable, really angsty, not happy at all, think it's an absolute mistake. Something happens overnight. They sleep on it and they wake up uh, in the morning going, oh, and it's, it's kind of they come in on the second day going, right, OK, I can do this. And um, what I had was uh, quite a bit of pushback in two ways. One is particularly the voting thing where everyone gets to vote on whether the plan is good and they do the, 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 the finger voting. Uh, a number of people said that they thought the more junior staff shouldn't vote because they it was unfair on them. It was a bit too much to ask them to expect to vote. So um, we had a good conversation around that about how actually quite often they will spot things that others haven't seen or, or actually if they don't understand it, that's the time they need to say so that we can make sure everybody has that understanding. And others thought the senior people shouldn't vote because, hey, it's their plan anyway. Um, but fundamentally, if you put five fingers up or two fingers, up, you've got to justify that and, and have that in. So uh, I think it's getting getting people into the culture. But I would say just it sounds like they're ring spotting it out. You know, start slow. Bring bring in a guiding coalition. I don't know if you remember we did that in defence. We started together. We tried to bring a guiding coalition together as to act as a coaching, mentoring, um, a safe space, people to come problems and issues to a little bit of funding so people can have great ideas and be funded. Uh, that really worked really well. And then just creating that kind of mentoring network um, uh, as well. But I just don't be slavish to safe. There's so many safe haters. Um, I'm not one. 
uh, I, I think is a really good framework with lots of really good content, but you've got to apply it rather than just um, uh, slavishly follow it. Does that make sense? You're muted, Mamie. <laughs> Sorry, that's really helpful. Thank you. And really good to know that um, you can prep for the uh, everybody hating it. So it's good to know that in advance. <laughs> yeah, hi. Uh, yeah, firstly, thanks, Sarah. This is this is really good. Thanks for your time. Um, and just a couple of observations. No, no, like groundbreaking questions from me whatsoever. Um, yes. <laughs> The, uh, the power of silence jumped out because we've just started doing that. And it's just it's so funny to watch just because it's the extroverts absolutely hate it. The introverts love it. And we do. We just do a, a forced two minutes silence. And it it feels like the longest two minutes ever for me. because I just can't shut up. But as, as a as a tool to be really inclusive, it's it's fascinating. And I think for us, a challenge is going to be when we have the hybrid linking back to Sam's point, I think, you know, when we do have some people in the room and some at home, you know, it, it not allowing those side conversations in, in the room is is so hard. And we, we we tried before where when the meeting finishes, you cannot speak if you're in the room. You just leave the room and in the same way you just left the call, which which is a massive challenge. It shouldn't be, but it, it just is. And then the other observation, um, yeah, it's just going into that. Uh, I think we found we're really good at this if we're all in the room or we're all online, but it's that, again, that hybrid thing of all getting around a virtual plan or all getting around a physical plan and how you, you keep that really inclusive, dynamic, kind of fast-paced environment when you are split. So it's just, it's just as a challenge for me going forward, I, I recognise that. Yeah, and again, technology will eventually come to the, come to the rescue and we've all seen those virtual workplaces where you can see your avatar moving around, you can have robots in the office that actually move their heads and your face is on that robot you know so there's there's technology coming but yeah we're all going to be seasick because we've got vr goggles on um and we're just going to have going to have to work it through and it's it's probably through getting a screen size you in the room and that ability to break out into sidebar conversations so you can mimic however there's also a lot of research about we're making a mistake and we're trying to mimic the office online and actually, we shouldn't. We should be thinking about how we can work more productively in this new environment and differently in this new environment. We're all going to meetings still, but actually, is, is should we be working differently? Um, and there is something around how do we reimagine how we're going to work, which is quite difficult. No, good, 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 good points, Tim. Thank you. Well, I think we're just coming up to the, the final last minute, Sarah. Has anyone else got any thoughts they would like to share before we sort of close the session? I would no, say well, so for, for close. Oh. I would just say closing thought that um, if agile leadership is about the opportunity as well, also to give other people voices as well. It's been a really lovely session to be able to hear and and have the conversation. So it's just a really great way of demonstrating a different way rather than you telling. Um, so thank you. I wish I'd done more of it. I, I went on too long, <laughs> but thanks for that. Well, Sarah, thank you ever so much um, for the session today. It's been really, really useful. And thank you ever so much for um, everyone's participation. It's, it's, been, it's been great.